I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This episode of Futurecast is proudly sponsored by Salesforce Datarama. To learn more about how teams are using Datarama to grow their marketing, visit marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast or click the link in our episode notes. In this episode of Futurecast, we continue our conversation with Professor Sahail Inayatullah, the Chair of Future Studies at UNESCO. In last week's episode, Sahail introduced us to the four post-COVID scenarios. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, check that out first. But even now, looking at what's happening with uh, consumption having decreased because of lockdowns and, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's, it feels like a bit of a catch-22 because with le- less consumption, the economy is collapsing. And with uh, too much consumption, we are basically killing all of our natural resources and so many other externalities coming from that. How, how do we, we resolve the tension? I mean, that's the big meta question, right? In scenario two, consumption is reduced this year, but then it goes back to normal next year. In scenario three, consumption is transformed. So you consume more ideas and spirit, but perhaps not as much physical matter. Or you have ways for consumers get real-time information on the implications of what we consume. Here's what it leads to in terms of your personal health and planetary health. So that's giving more information, right? So you, we make, make wiser choices. The other part of that, well, you price differently if nature had a real price, right? So it's not the price not counting nature, it's the price counting nature. So in the awakening, we have real pricing. And thus, you make wiser decisions because now you're confronted with the actual cost, the downstream cost, not those costs generally the government has to pay for. Here, no, everyone pays for it because we know what the information is. So the great awakening in your language, what you're suggesting, consumption is transformed. The zombie apocalypse, we're eating ourselves. In the great despair, the wealthy consume dramatically more, and the poor and the middle class, their consumptions drop, and they go into states of depression. And the depression is because they don't see hope, and the depression is if you don't feel you can get the world you want. So that leads to one's energy, one's vision, being stymied and one feels life is one big giant series of hurdles. I mean, this is very interesting because just today I saw two headlines that were very telling of what you just mentioned about the great despair. I saw on Time magazine today that the top 1% of Americans have taken 50 trillion from the bottom 90% and that has made the US less secure. And then 10 minutes later, I opened The Guardian and I saw the following headline that the world's richest 1%, they, they, they doubled CO2 emissions of the poorest 50%. And uh, does it mean that we're actually already living in this great despair scenario? Yeah, I mean, so the indicators help us discern which is more likely, which is less likely. So clearly, in terms of my political view, we want wealth accumulation but are there maximum and minimum? So the system I would like to see has a maxi mini. 
So if you know you decide in each country or globally, here's the max. You know what would you do with ten billion dollars? I have no idea. So there's we're at the point where wealth accumulation becomes in itself a mantra. So there's never enough because one always wants more, and so it ceases to be the quadruple bottom line. It's prosperity for self as opposed to prosperity for many. It's planet for yourself instead of planet for the planet. And people and purpose also disappear. So the well, purpose remains. It's just more accumulation. Now, if you don't have enough accumulation, then of course you have a whole range of problems in terms of poverty and also depression.、Mm. And so, Hale, I wanted to ask you. So, what do you think some of the challenges that we Are facing when it comes to creating a unified approach to overcome some of the problems that you're raising in these future scenarios.、Um, I wonder whether you know human behavior or the way the mind works or different worldviews, you know, that we're touching on. Are, are they some of the things that stop us from having a unified approach to to create, you know, a more hopeful future? I mean, this is the thing we all wrestle with, right?、Uh, If it's one world system, how do I ensure we have freedoms and rights? If it's a pluralistic 200 nations or so or more, then how do we ensure the planet and people are included? So this becomes the big philosophical question, questions: universal versus individual. Now, bringing this back to a level that I can manage, I don't know about you folks, in terms of next steps, I always try to find out. One zone of control. So, what are the areas I can influence, and how how can I expand that influence? So that's one area that we really try to focus on when you do futures work. If I'm working with young kids, here's where you want to be in 2080, 2090, or 2030. What are some things you can do in the next six months or the next few years to start to create that future? Otherwise, it becomes too big of a problem. It's too big. The entire planet in the next hundred years. So the zone of control is crucial. Every country,、uh, every community has a zone of control, a zone of influence. Now, our current period, if if you if you like, we can call it a, the Great Transition. Since the 15th century, we've had the rise of the West, a world capitalist system,、uh, and that has been wonderful in many ways in terms of outputs, but also for most of us, it's reaching its limit. So then you start to imagine what's the next world system, and I think we're in this transition. When you have transition times, the term I learned from the French Revolution is time gets plastic. Sarkar calls that、uh, galloping. So it's moving and it's plastic, thus it can be influenced. So in terms of climate change futures, how does Greta, one young person, have so much influence globally? So this is where, in plastic times, you have more influence. So the good news is we're in a plastic time right now for the next ten years, maybe twenty, thirty years. And so this allows influence. So the first thing to figure out is, okay, where can I make a difference? How do I wish to make that difference? Where is the future I wish to be in twenty, thirty years? And do our best with compassion to act on that. So that's kind of the local level. Then there's the meso level. Whatever organization we are in or working with, how then do we get clear on where we wish to go? And that becomes more collective. At the planetary level, that's the big picture stuff. 
in terms of I have a series of books with Johann Galtung and others on macro history, we go back a few thousand years and go forward a thousand years. And this becomes the critical part. And Nikolai Kardashev, the great uh, theoretical physicist, says every civilization throughout the cosmos, this is, this is his hypothesis, reaches a point where the contradictions between energy, fossil fuels, nuclear, and governance system, divided by religion, divided by nation, they reach a contradiction. If they don't resolve it, they explode. The zombies went out. If they resolve it, they go to a type one civilization where there's a governance structure, one entire planet. There's a vision of who we are, a new paradigm of what it means to be human. The ones we were suggesting earlier, that quadruple bottom line, we're all human first, nation, religion, etc. second. And we have global rules. He says, if you can make it to a type one civilization, now you've avoided planetary uh, catastrophe. Then type two civilization, of course, our energy needs expand. Then we need to basically make Gaia beautiful, but start to leave the planet and use solar energy and start to go into other planets and finally actually leave the solar system. You go to a type two, type three civilization. So for Sarkar and Sorkin and other big type, thing, big macro historians, they come to the same conclusion. The pattern we've had for the last 500 years has brought some innovation, but now it's deeply, you might say, exploitive. It puts too many people down, the data Sergio just gave. So this becomes, where do we go next? What do you do in those contradictions? But those contradictory times are not always the funnest to live through because we're not sure where to hang our anchors on. So this partly explains the conspirituality, the rise of fascism. In times of deep transition, how do you and I, how do us three anchor? So sometimes I debate people, sometimes I just say, no, find your anchor. So anchor for me, number one, is what the person is saying does it go towards race or humanity? Anchor number two, is it just about products or about nature as well? Anchor number three, is it just about material goods or does it evoke the spiritual? Anchor number four, is it exclusionary or more inclusionary? So I have four or five of these anchors I borrowed from Sarkar and they become how I try to maintain my rationality when everything is changing. For the first time ever, Salesforce Datarama has conducted a research study in seven countries across Asia and ANZ. Learn about the top challenges marketers face and how they are utilizing data to drive growth in our survey of over 1,000 top marketing leaders. Download it now from marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast, or you can find a link in our episode notes. Yeah, and especially when it comes to marketing, the, I would say that the anchor that we have is grow and growth. Uh, and in that sense, uh, uh, how brands grow, volume one and volume two are possibly the most important books in, in the space of brand marketing and marketing in general. And having growth as an imperative to driving brands forward. Uh, and this is very much the business as usual mindset that has been emphasized and still is even, you know, considering everything that is happening around us and within these default positions, how can we actually open new pathways for thinking about the future of, of this industry of marketing? Well, you two are the experts. I'm very open to ideas. <laughs>
the initial thought was that Futurecast would become the forum for that. But given your experience in uh, creating these new pathways in organizations and making them think beyond business as usual, what have been the most effective exercises or tips that you could give us to help drive action? Sure. But before we go there, Jazz, you had your anchors. What were those? Mm. Well, I actually would like to borrow some of your Sahail because I think that I am ankleless sometimes at this point of history. So, yeah. So this is this. Thank you. And that becomes uh, crucial for. So, this is the framework of something called new humanism. So, what are some of the anchors? And it's so easy to get lost in debates. If I go to the anchor, I said, okay, here's what really matters. So, in terms of the marketing futures, uh, the method I use is CLA, causal layered analysis, and it's exactly as Sergio said. We say. The current litany is probably number of clients. The system you folks know better is how to get attention on what one is doing. The worldview is capitalism and the inner story is grow, grow, grow. I mean, I'm not sure you're the experts, but quickly having seen some of this, I think that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then we ask ourselves, well, what's the better metaphor? Is it grow, 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 or is it a dynamic balance? Sometimes we grow, sometimes we need to pause. So dynamic balance could be the new worldview. And you think, well, okay, what's a better metaphor? Well, maybe the seasons. There's a winter time, a summertime, a springtime, or it could be some other metaphor. So it's marketing itself saying our current narrative of marketing may have worked. Is there a better story? If it's the seasons, well, what does that mean in terms of strategy and how are we measuring ourselves? So this is saying the limits of grow, grow, grow have been reached. What's a new a new metaphor for where we can go. So most organizations I work with, we try to go with that. With energy companies, it's often just keep the lights on. A number of energy companies I've been working with, they come up seem like the genie, the wizard. So what does that mean as a powerful story? It means, aha, the wizard lets me know in real time my energy use. The wizard lets me know in real time what I'm doing in terms of impact on the planet. The wizard lets me know in real time my expenses and costs. And the wizard ultimately lets me have the energy I need when I, when actually I need it. So this was shifting from just keep the lights on to a far more dynamic metaphor that can help meet their needs and the needs and the needs of stakeholders. So it starts with finding a new metaphor for what any company or any field is facing. And that metaphor then starts to lead to a new culture and then what are the systemic strategies, as well as how do we measure where we're going? So that's kind of CLA in a nutshell. Mm. And I think if that's applied to marketing, that gives ways for alternative futures. And I think that there has been a lot of um, stagnancy and and fear around you know where to go next in the industry. And um, this is a good time to, to reevaluate that metaphor, as you say. Well, the one thing I've noticed is the trust factor. So I do a lot of work with law enforcement. And the number of meetings we've had recently, it's very clear to me the main agreement is trust. We trust you to have weapons as long as you're following the law. If you're choosing particular groups to exercise authority and force based on no reason, then you lose trust. So marketing now, given all the research we're seeing on surveillance capitalism, anticipatory systems being used to not just help me decide what I need next, which I quite like, 
but more implicate me in strategies and politics and futures I don't wish for, then trust is gone. If large companies are favoring particular futures for the planet versus other futures, I mean, we're pretty clear what's going on in the U.S., then that trust is gone. So this really comes out to me in periods of dramatic change. How do I keep trust? Mm. And that's a question that marketers ask and brands ask themselves all the time, and I think it's so pertinent right now. Um, I actually wanted to ask a question to you, Sergio. So given the article that you've you've written recently um, and you speak about marketing being life and life being marketing, how did you apply some of these future scenarios that Sahail has described to the marketing and business world? And what were some of your key takeaways? Ooh. Uh, first of all, I think that the sentence marketing is life and life is marketing is not something that came from me. I stole it with a lot of pride from <laughs> Professor Gad Saad. He's an evolutionary psychologist that has specialized in the space of consumer behavior, which, I mean, makes it, makes it really interesting because in the end of the day, the same mental processes that we use to choose a pair of shoes or, you know, the next holiday destination is the, are, the, are the same ones that we use when consuming philosophies or uh, different tastes or preferences. So it's, it's all the same and marketing in the sense is life and life is marketing. It's, it's all about the choices we make. Uh, I've been uh, reading a lot about all of these scenarios and uh, for each of those, I've been taking some personal uh, measures as well as providing recommendations and, and whatnot. But in the case of the zombie apocalypse, for example, uh, if everything gets, you know, if the walls start to emerge and xenophobia becomes something that is uh, quite scary, I would definitely be reactivating my networks in the countries where I have a citizenship, even though Australia is the migration nation, you know, that could, that, that could be a threat here. Something that I've been reading a lot as well and that has possibly become the Bible at this very moment is uh, the book Anti-Fragile by uh, Nassim Taleb. Uh, I would love to hear what Soheil has to say about Nassim Taleb because he is someone that has worked in the, in the options market, which is essentially about dealing, dealing with the future. What are, your, what are your options for the future? But he, he sees that in a very pragmatic way as well, that we need to go out there, learn from the environment, and based on that, evolve not so much, you know, envision things that are too far from us. So that, that, that imposes, you know, a very practical mindset as well. On, uh, on the needed pause, I, I, would, I, have, I had seen that a little bit more like our BAU. We are now improvising uh, reality without having a vision other than you know, just returning to, to, the, to the normal, to what has been normal to us. Digital, digital transformation in this sense has become the word of order. You know, let's replace uh, our, uh, our street windows with, with screens, with the e-commerce. But on the other hand, you know, by, sol by solving an issue that is happening right now may even further enhance this, uh, 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 this, uh, the short-termism that has been plaguing us all. So, you know, to, to that extent, it could also be a time to then reflect and look ahead, pause, and see how we can actually accelerate, but in a better way, not in a way that returns to the, to the same normal that we've been in. 
uh, on the global health awakening, I, I mean, I, I'm, an, I'm an optimist. I think that's the only way to be. Otherwise, you know, why worry so much about the future? Uh, and this is, this is the scenario that I, I like to spend most time with as well. And, you know, thinking about ways on how we can enable a different and better futures for everyone involved. I personally have started consuming a lot more from uh, plant-based meats. Uh, uh, you riding my bike a lot more as well, not using the car. I actually, since since the outbreak, I I probably can count on my fingers the number of times that I've driven using my car. Most of the time, it's just walking and riding the bike, which is very nice. Um, and on the great great despair, I think this uh, uh, this emergence of tribes and everyone isolating from one another, maybe globalization collapsing. This could be a, a resurgence of hyper-targeted or even hyper-tribalized segments in marketing because uh, since uh, Professor Byron Sharp came with uh, uh, his book, How Brands Grow, you know, the, the, the rule is be broad on your targeting. And that's what he calls sophisticated mass marketing. And this is what marketers have been applying to convert more and more audiences onto their, their, their brands, but if we all become tribalized, then local area marketing and maybe uh, uh, some new publishing guilds could reemerge, maybe even the, the whole idea of citizen uh, journalism as well. Everyone is, it becomes his or her own channel, and this is the new way to communicate. Uh, but still, you know, it, these are things that are just being developed, and I, uh, I am just trying to learn from that. At, the, at this point in time. Mm. And I think uh, COVID-19 has definitely brought some existing tensions to light that were already in existence in the marketing world, you know, traditional versus digital and um, and the environmental and social impacts of overconsumption like you touch on and, and you write about as well, Sergio. So I, I wonder whether the current situation has presented opportunities for marketing to go beyond being that profit-driven um, and that short-termism and create a new definition for what effectiveness can look like. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, if, if there is a time to think, to question something like this, right now is the time. Actually, in two days, uh, the EFIS will be, they, they will be hosting this virtual event. And uh, this will be a topic, a topic of discussion. Should we reveal what defines marketing effectiveness? Especially when, if you know, marketing is this oil that lubricates the many transactions that drive our economy. Perhaps we could just reframe our old our worldview by sitting behind the steering wheel, not just you know oiling the cogs and just keeping our views within the transactions in market. And for you, Sohail, I have a question: Is is foresight in these ways of thinking? Is that is it for every organization or industry? Can it be applied to an industry like marketing, um, the kinds of things that you're, you're speaking about? So as a typology, think of one as forecasting. So that's what many people want. Tell us how many robots we'll have in the world in 2030. So that's, that's kind of level one. Mm -hmm. Level two, well, you think, well, you forecasted, but your forecast was wrong. And so then there's a realization, I don't live in a closed system. I live in an open system where the forecast in itself is a variable that's implicated in what happens. So then people move to scenarios. So not one future, but many futures. And then from that, you get strategic foresight. Here are the changing world, the weak signals, emerging issues, black swans. 
how can I use that foresight to optimize my organization? Now, I like to go a step, in my view, further, which is transformational foresight. So in transformational foresight, it's not foresight leaving, leading to a new plan. The transformational part is we're not outside the earth holding a lever changing the world. We're actually complicit in the world we see and we create. So transformational foresight is I'm part of the problem and solution. So it's not just the future changing them, we're all in the arena together. So thus every project, I have to do the inner work to ask what's my story in this project? What information do I wish to use? How can I be changed from it? So this is where we go from forecasting to strategic foresight to transformational futures. So transformation futures includes scenarios, metaphors, and of course the inner work asking always what's my particular metaphor about my stage in life. So that's how I'd, I'd like to frame it. That's, that's really interesting. And it, uh, it just made me question in my mind if our brands metaphors, do you see brands as metaphors? Well, they become that way, right? They don't start that way, but eventually they actually become a narrative in itself. Mm -hmm. That's actually the idea, I guess. You want to create a brand which in itself becomes a story. But the story can become a bad one, like being Kodak. <laughs> That's no longer a good story. That's right. And I guess um, with that in mind, it, it makes me question, you know, what role brands play in creating the future that we want to see. So in terms of strategic foresight, the goal would be to optimize your own brand in the branding universe, right? Mm. You want to optimize whether it's profits or placement or attention. So that's why that's the sell of futures, reduce risk, increase opportunities. And, and there's some validity there. The earlier questions was, is it just about optimizing my brand? What's my role within the planet with other 8 billion of us? So if you look at the brilliant work of the New Zealand prime minister, she acted decisively, used science policy, and she told the story of a team of 5 million. So she used the narrative of sports in her country and made it into a team of 5 million. So the planetary question is, can we be a team of 8 billion? So that's really Gaia as a brand to other civilizations. Of course, there's only us right now that we know of. Mm. So I'm not sure who we would market that to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess we're marketing it to ourselves to make sure we can make the we can make a healthy transition out of our current cul-de-sac, find a way forward. And it's an interesting way to frame it because I've often thought that, you know, when you see the way that different leaders are, whole, are managing this reality that we're living in right now, is that in some regards they do have to market to to the citizens in order to unite us. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I, the leaders I've worked with, they have an idealistic subpersonality, and they're also, of course, very much beyond pragmatic about re-election. So then when I'm in that situation, I try to say, okay, this vision 2040 if it's done well, will help you get to 2023. So that's one of the ways to resolve that tension. Uh, the second way is, of course, to embed the future personally, to make it more meaningful for them so they actually have a real personal experience. So 
that's why in a lot of our workshops we do role playing we get people to have an experience of the embodied future so i remember with one mayor sergio has heard this story before we did a visioning exercise and we had him he, he was a runner imagine what running through his city would look like in 2040 and that helped him figure out aha here's why his personal life as a runner matters and then he imagined himself in a safe city in a green city with organic farms growing in every you know sky skyscraper and then he imagined himself with lots of public spaces so suddenly running and the safety of running the exhilaration of running became a way to think about the future he wanted if we had done it the other way let's look at the quantitative data and start to figure out uh, the finances of the city, I'm not sure we would have come to the same response. So he starts from his preferred future, then figures out, okay, how do I ensure my preferred future is funded for? So one thing we've seen from the COVID-19 crisis, as many young people say, say, aha, they said there was no funding for climate change. We see now there is. So often this is global political will. Futures thinking, anticipatory systems thinking says, let's make this shift before it gets worse. The short-term approach is, well, we'll wait till it hits us in the face, then we make the shift. And the short-term approach we've seen with COVID-19 has not been good enough. And if more crises are to come, it's critical that every country, every organization has a futures component to what they do. It's critical that countries have regional associations, an Asian confederation, an African confederation, and those regional confederations begin to develop shared legal systems to focus on, again, the quadruple bottom line. And eventually, if that works, then we start to play with, okay, what's a global governance system? But that's a step-by-step way forward. Mm. This is quite interesting because when, when, when developing a brand, we usually create a value proposition for consumers. But, but there's also in the role that, that brands play internally in an organization. And what usually happens is the creation of an employee value proposition. Basically, what's in it for me as the, as the employee working behind that brand? And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting analogy to the CLA methodology as well. How, how can I make this future or this abstraction that a brand is personal? And how can I make myself part of the problem and part of the solution? Uh, maybe we need to bring a little bit more of the visioning side of things in marketing to allow for broader conversations. But with, with that said, if you could choose a brand today that best represents the future that you would like to see in the world, what brand would that be? Is it Nike? Is it Apple? Is it Tesla? Is it Patagonia? Which of these brands? I wish I had an answer. <laughs> uh, my brand is not yet created. All right. <laughs> the one I would be most connected to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, no, I, it's a great question. I just don't have an answer. I mean, I really think it would be Gaia. Mm. So the planet itself as a brand, that's the one that makes the most sense. Okay. That's uh, that's a good challenge. Good food for thought for us. <laughs> yes. You've actually got me thinking as well, Sergio, about who who sums up my values. What would be yours, Jess? Oh, look, I, I don't, I think that I'm yet to decide and I'm going to give myself space to, to decide that because none of them are infallible to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to be aligned to anyone quite so closely. 
at least this this week my favorite brand for the future is Patagonia especially after what I mm. saw they that they did in, in the in their labels inside the clothes you know yeah, it's impressive yeah. it's really impressive yeah. I think that was a very very impactful message in a very interesting way mm. yeah I saw you posted that I thought wow that's powerful <laughs> that takes guts it takes strength it's conviction yeah mm. And you're saying, here's the future we want. They don't shy away. So, Sergio, I actually have a question for you quickly as we, we begin to wrap up. Mm -hmm. Having worked and collaborated with Professor Sahail, do you think that marketers are better placed to stepping up as futurists than, say, engineers or doctors or lawyers? And how receptive do you think our industry is regarding this discipline moving forward? Oh wow, that's that's a great question. And uh, look, I, I'm a, I'm very suspicious to answer that, and I'm very biased considering that I have already stepped out of my comfort zone to be in the futures space as well. But yeah, absolutely, I think that marketers are very well pos positioned to becoming futurists. Actually, becoming a futurist is one of us, Professor Soheyo's courses that is now uh, being offered online because of COVID. Uh, and uh, what, what I can also say about that, and I think it was Russell Halcroft that just recently or a few days ago, he said that consultancies might be the, the most influential players in, in, in our economy, but those working in marketing and the, the advertising industry are possibly the smartest folks. And it might be a very self-serving uh, affirmation, but I, I'll tend to agree with that. I think that the quality and diversity of talent that we have in our industry is very, very impressive. And marketers are always thinking about the future, thinking about what next, the importance of creativity, bold ideas, trends and whatnot. But above all things, I think that this ability to communicate is what makes a huge difference. I remember last year when Soheyo invited me to come to the Asia Pacific uh, Futurist Network encounter in Bangkok, where I delivered a workshop about the strategic communications. And I had a room filled with uh, futurists, you know, uh, strategic foresight practitioners of the highest caliber, people from the UN, from the World Economic Forum. And I just, I just asked a very simple question to everyone in the room, which was, if you had to explain to your mom, what do you do for a living? How, what, would that, what, what would that one line be? And <laughs> suddenly everyone was, was, was silent and then, you know, everyone was laughing. Because as simple as it is, it's a very hard question to, uh, to answer as well because of the complexity of, of, of the profession, but also because perhaps there could be an opportunity to better train futurists on how to communicate and sell their ideas. No, I agree with Sergio. I've seen so many projects where people do quantitative scenarios. Yeah. So they're really well done but the communicative dimension in terms of story is not there. So our work very much is informed by that. Tell the new story, ensure it's grounded in science. So it's science plus story. Mm. It's about, I guess, finding that intersection and that, that form of communication that, that pairs the story with that science and being able to communicate that with people so in a way that they understand it. Again, going back to our anchors, is the story just for me or is it an inclusionary story for everyone? Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, head of Content Brains and publisher of Marketing Mag, and Jazz Giuliani, editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. 
Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.